Morning, gang. A happy July 12th, 2019. Welcome to Sidebar with John Duran. I hope you all had a fantastic 4th of July last Friday. Uh, we were dark here. We were all enjoying the holiday with our families and friends and finding reasons to celebrate, notwithstanding the knucklehead in the Oval Office. And we did. We had a great barbecue and poolside and a little lesbian poker on the side. I had a wonderful 4th of July. And so let me tell you what is going on today. So we've got a, a great group of guests coming on today. We're going to start out with Rabbi Lisa Edwards. Uh, Rabbi Lisa Edwards is uh, the rabbi at the uh, longest serving running continuous LGBT synagogue in the country, Beth Kayin Chadassim, uh, here in Los Angeles. And she has been the rabbi for, I think, 25 years. And she recently announced her retirement, and so I said, "Well, before you retire, let's let's get some of your stories, because obviously, uh, being the rabbi for so long at the very first synagogue in the United States, uh, they have gone from you know coming out in acceptance uh, through the AIDS epidemic, uh, through marriage equality, to where they are today. And so I thought uh, it'd be interesting to hear her perspective before she really goes into slumber and retirement. But knowing Lisa, she's unstoppable. I'm sure she'll just keep on keeping on. And then we're going to uh, bring in. Lane Hudson, who's calling in from Washington, D.C. Lane is uh, a political activist and consultant in the nation's capital, and he is working with the Zero for Zeros campaign. It's a, a new campaign that got launched urging HRC and other organizations to not endorse those corporations who fund and give money to our political enemies. You know, they they can't uh, be playing both sides of the fence is the argument can't be supporting LGBT rights and that simultaneously funding uh, radical right-wingers in the U.S. Congress. So uh, that's something that Lane has created and actively involved with. And then uh, John Bozeman is going to stop in studio today. John has been uh, very active with Truth Wins Out. That is the national organization that is going after reparative therapy as being a trauma-producing um, uh well, abuse of uh, religious LGBT people trying to force them to change and convert their sexual orientation. And of course, it doesn't work. It, it hasn't never worked. It is a fraud and it's bad medicine. And in the meantime, a lot of LGBT people are left despondent and suicidal because they're not able to change their sexual orientation. It'd be like trying to change your eye color. You, you can, you know, put a colored contact lens over it, but you're still gay underneath. So uh, John will be coming and talking about that. And then finally, we're going to hear from Doug Spearman. Doug, a celebrated actor here in Los Angeles, African-American, gay guy um, who was on the show uh, Noah's Ark during the uh, 90s, maybe 2000s. Uh, Anyway, uh, Doug uh, recently uh, wrote and directed uh, a brand new movie. It's premiering at Outfest called Zero to I Love You. Uh, but Doug is miffed. Uh, he he watched uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco, and actually I watched The Last Black Man in San Francisco, uh, and we were comparing notes about it, and we both uh, conceded that it was a good movie, and kudos to uh, Brad Pitt and the others who produced it and created it. It's really a story about gentrification in San Francisco and the displacement of minority communities to high-tech industry. And so it had a good theme, but I think what Doug was troubled about is that one Once again, African-Americans' stories are only portrayed as lives with drugs and gangs and guns and violence. And uh, isn't there any uh, room for normalcy 
for African-American lives to just be portrayed without gangs and drugs and violence and guns um, because that's African-American lives in this country, too just kind of normal like i'm all about black ariel and the little mermaid uh i think it's going to be fantastic um but um doug wanted to chat about that and i've known doug a very long time we started equality california together along with many others back in 2000 and um he's just a really smart guy so he'll be finishing out the show so that's what we've got lined up today Meanwhile, uh, you know, while I was sitting here drinking my, uh, I can't say the product. Can I say Red Bull? I don't know. Monster Energy Red Bull, whatever, Jason. I'm drinking my energy drink this morning and uh, watching the knucklehead in the Oval Office who, uh, you know, I I guess maybe he's only talking to those people who find him credible. Because, of course, at this point, having experienced him now for almost three years, I I pretty much uh, detest him. And just about anything coming out of his mouth, I automatically doubt and find to not be credible even before he starts speaking, given who it is that is speaking. He just cannot tell the truth uh, about anything. And anything he disagrees with, he tries to label as fake or fraudulent when, in fact, he is the one that is fake and fraudulent. And uh, here's the reality, uh, Donald Trump. You you had your head handed to you on a platter by the U.S. Supreme Court. And it gives me hope that Chief Justice John Roberts joined the four liberals and ruled that uh, your administration could not conduct uh, and add a question about citizenship onto the U.S. Census. And we had uh, Arturo Vargas from Naleo here a couple of weeks ago talking about this issue. And they went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court <coughs> And uh, the U.S. Supreme Court said, look, ever since the 14th Amendment uh, established equality in this nation and African-Americans were no longer two-fifths of a person, we count all persons within the United States during the census, whether they are citizens, residents, undocumented residents, really doesn't matter. We're trying to get an accurate count so we can figure out how to apportion funding and resources across the 50 states to do what's best to care for our people and care for our nation. And all persons. Persons, regardless of uh, immigration status or citizenry, get counted. That has always been the law, continues to be the law. Donald Trump uh, and Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, tried to add this question. I don't think because they were necessarily uh, interested in the figure or the data, because the reality is the government already counts citizens and non-citizens in the annual uh, community survey that the federal government does. They already do a counting estimate of uh, undocumented people in this country. So I don't think they're interested in the actual data. What they're interested in is continuing their campaign of fear uh, against immigrants, uh, brown-skinned people, uh, to continue to place them in fear about being rounded up by ICE, uh, being intimidated, you know, living with the panic that their families may be separated at any moment, their children placed in cages. I mean, this sounds like some, you know, dystopia, but it is what is happening in the United States of America right now along our borders. The reality is families are being torn apart. Children are being placed in cages. People are being stacked 100 to a cell without adequate food, clothing, shelter, water, uh, some are drinking out of toilets, uh, people are dying while they're in these camps. I mean, it, it is really a horrendous situation 
And I know that there are candlelight vigils planned this evening all across the country to protest the Trump administration's uh, handling of this uh, crisis that they have created. They have created a crisis for political purposes and for political gain because it speaks to the base of uh, Donald Trump that they think that this is really great that we're beating up on these poor people here who are seeking refuge and sanctuary as they escape the violence of Central America and other places around the world. Uh, and, you know, I'm sorry, man. I, I Like I've said before on this show, I know just enough Bible to be dangerous to myself and to others. Uh, but both Old and New Testament are replete with verses about being kind to the foreigner, being kind to the stranger, reaching out. Don't forget that you were once a stranger within your own land. And uh, that is in both Old and New Testament. So the fact that the religious right has lined itself up behind Trump's policies of anti-immigrant is just hypocritical and disgusting. Yeah, I have no other word for it. Disgusting. All right. Enough about that. We're going to commercial. We'll be back in just a few minutes. And uh, first up, Rabbi Lisa Edwards about her journey at the longest serving synagogue in the United States. Thanks for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. The new Channel Q. The new Channel Q. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And translation, Rabbi Edwards. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Welcome back, gang. Uh, thank you for that little ditty, uh, Jason. A uh, little Israeli music to start off our session here with uh, Rabbi Lisa Edwards from, let me get this right, Beth Chaim Chadassim. Not bad Hashadashim. for... Yep. Okay, not bad for a Gentile, I guess. <laughs> Welcome, Rabbi. Thank you. So um, you have been the rabbi at BCC for how many years? Uh, 25. That's 25 a, years. That's yes. probably Jason's entire lifetime, isn't it? Yeah, Jason. <laughs> or you're, more than. <laughs> or more than your entire lifetime, I think. It's uh, almost. I'm 26 right now. Okay, so, so as long though. as you've been <laughs> on the planet. I think I did your baby naming, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the history of the synagogue. It was the first in the nation, right? Yeah, it was, uh, it was founded in 1972, so well before I got there. Um, by a small group of uh, gay and lesbian Jews who um, actually had been attending um, Reverend Troy Perry's living room oh my meetings. Gosh. When, uh, he was a guest a few weeks ago uh, here on the show. Yeah. Wonderful yeah. man. Yeah. Um, so he had f was in the process of founding MCC, the Metropolitan Community Church, right. and, um, and really in that welcoming environment. Uh, some Jews who were looking for some safe haven right. to still talk about religion. And, and God and their spirituality. Exactly. They ended up in Troy's living room too, huh? Right. I, I didn't know that part of the story. Yeah, huh? and uh, and he was very encouraging to them. You know, he said, you're, you're welcome here, of course, but right. you're Jews, why don't you? <laughs> yeah, start your own synagogue. <laughs> and uh, they were um, not sure how to do that, and Troy called a local rabbi, um, 
at the at the uh, at the reform movement headquarters, and um, they were very welcoming. And really, in 1972, out. they were uh, they were supportive, huh? They wow. were um, individually they were supportive, or right. individuals were supportive. Right. Um, and then and it didn't take all that long, really, for the for the whole movement to uh, be accepting. So. Again, Reverend Perry kind of stayed with us for a, a while and encouraged, but there were rabbis who stepped in, and then just the lay leaders of the congregation really got organized pretty quickly. Wow. Um, and started started having their own services. It really it started in, in June, you know, it was kind of a pride. <laughs> pride month wasn't really um, so set in its ways at that time, but... They started in June of 1972, and they've held services ever since. Many lay leaders have gone through there. Wow. As, as well as rabbis. So, so I'm curious, because I, I know a little bit, like I was saying before you guys got here, I know just enough Bible to be dangerous to myself and others, <laughs> right? I know just enough, because I was raised Catholic. But uh, the most of the prohibitions on homosexuality in the Old Testament come out of Leviticus, which was a Judaic code of mores and about sanction, what's what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and then of course the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is also in Leviticus. Right. How how do you, as the rabbi, reconcile those passages? And I'm I'm probably asking you a question that's like yesterday's news, but <laughs> for the listener who's tuning in, how how do you reconcile those passages? Well, I think in the in in ways similar to the way I reconcile all the problematic passages in in our tradition but it's our our tr- our tradition is one that invites um evolving thinking about things um it's a tradition that t- tells people that there are discussions to be had about everything and um and that we need to have those discussions together right that um it's a tradition that says this is a a religion that's intended to make life better for people and to make living in community better for people. So if at a time they were worried maybe about procreation and growing... The um, people, the, the tribe, the growing tribe, the tribe, exactly, right? Yeah. Um, that may have been a, a reason for... A Discouraging same-gender sexual <laughs> relations, right? If exactly, you're trying to breed exactly. up a tribe, you need to have male and female. Right. And of um, course, this it, wasn't done in a vacuum. They were there. I mean, this is ancient Judaic history. The Greeks were obviously around and and at many times the Jews were enslaved by you know the Egyptians and others right. and so they were watching what other cultures were doing. Right. And and I think also yeah I, I I we often talk about that the fact that you know if it's prohibited it's probably because it was happening and somebody else was doing <laughs> <So> it. <laughs> that's very affirming to me. Right, right, right. <laughs> like that it's tells us for the there have always been. <laughs> the Greeks invented democracy. I learned that on uh, my big fat Greek wedding. wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also just a belief that God um, created deliberately and with purpose and right. clearly created us as well as everybody else. So. You know, the Trump administration just created a human rights... Speaking of creating. Yeah, speaking <laughs> of creating something. A human rights panel where they have invited every anti-LGBT religious leader in the country to serve on. Mm. So we know we're going to be targeted in the upcoming year. Yeah. But they often refer to natural law. 
natural law as being the fallback. But if we look at the way Mother Nature has worked, it's true that she has, you know, very defined black and white and up and down, but there's always variance in Mother Nature's world and there's yeah. always deviancy and that's where evolution occurs in those deviant places. Yeah, and Judaism really um, embraces that. You know, there's even a blessing for seeing someone or something that's very different and unusual to you. And the blessing says, blessed are you, God, who varies the forms of creation. Mm. You know, it's not a blessing that says, thank you for not making me like that. Or it's n- it's in no way negative. Right? right? It's this acknowledgement that God has created all of us. Right and that we are all part of God's creation. You know, I guess what's especially maddening to me about Trump, and there's so much, I mean, we could could spend hours, is the way that uh, the administration's attacking immigrants and getting the religious right to support them because biblically speaking, there are passages in both Old and New Testament about how we treat foreigners, how we treat strangers, because remember that you were once a stranger in your own land. A commandment that's given more times than any other in in the Hebrew Bible in the Torah. It is to be kind to foreigners yeah. and strangers, right? And to remember that we were, that we know how it feels. And to be a foreigner. And, and, and seldom does a commandment even come along with do this because you know how it feels. Right. You know? Right. And for the, for, for the <clears throat> Jews in the, the, their story, our stories in, in Torah, we do know how it feels. Right. We were those strangers. We were treated badly. And now our instruction our injunction is to do it right for others to treat them well and just looking at it historically i mean these were people in the desert you know often nomadic wandering about from tent to tent and in the desert if you didn't get access to water you were going to die in the desert and so the whole idea of welcoming in whoever showed up at your doorstep was a way of showing grace and goodness uh, and I think that's where it comes yeah. from and hospitality is there you know even in Jewish tradition the interpretation of what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah yes. is not about homosexuality it's about that they that they had plenty the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had plenty and they didn't share it with the foreigners yeah and, and that letters. that is actually in the Bible that these angels showed up mm-hmm. and to be taken in and they refused them the hospitality they would have exactly. extended to any other stranger. Exactly. And so what happened? They got volcanic rock thrown all over them. <laughs> <laughs> That'll teach you. <laughs> but to me, it's it's so it's depressing to watch otherwise very good religion believing people to be so far stray from the essence of their teachings because the women and children coming from El Salvador right now they are coming out of desert and desperation and they need water and food and shelter and we are just turning our backs and I think that you will see as these um, demonstrations grow and the gatherings in opposition to that treatment is growing um, you do see a lot of religious people in those dem- in the counter demonstrations. Thank goodness for yeah. the religious left, and I think that you have been one of the clergy members that's been doing that for your lifetime. Yeah, I've been trying. <laughs> you have, you have been. We're going to go to a commercial break, but when we come back, let's focus on that your journey. All right, thanks for tuning into Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. The new Channel Q. Selling a little or a lot. 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast i just i i just you know i don't know what it is between the muslim call the prayer or the israeli call the prayer i just i love it i just think it's so beautiful though it's so melodic anyway i i, I digress <laughs> we welcome back gang we're talking to rabbi lisa edwards from beth chaim Hadass- Sheem, Sheem, how does Sheem? It means House of New Life. Oh, that's a beautiful name for the very first LGBT synagogue in the world. Wonderful. And we have been joined in studio by John Bozeman uh, with Truth Wins Out. John uh, has been fighting against reparative therapy where they tried to turn him straight. Oh, it didn't work. It, it, of course it didn't work. Of course, my poor little Christian Those boy. things never work. They never work. They never. tried. <laughs> Lisa, Rabbi, when you um, got started 25 years ago, what was the burning issue for the synagogue then well we were still in the middle of AIDS AIDS uh, right yeah so it was a a lot of that of um, taking care of people of making sure that um, people had what they needed such as it was at the Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. didn't have any drugs that were really working right right Um, so it was a lot of I guess the good part of what came out of that is that people really bonded to each other. Yes, of course. Each other in really dire circumstances. Yeah. How many people did dying. you lose in your synagogue? Do you think? Um, a, a, a couple of dozen, more than that. Right? Mm. So, and leaders of the community, mm-hmm. and, um, friends of many, and so many people were widowed, and so many people facing uh, chronic. Uh, ailments, right? Um, even even those who survived. You know, so many of the early leaders in the LGBT movement in Los Angeles were also Jewish, and and I think it's part of I'm guessing the teaching of Torah about getting engaged with community. Yeah. Okay, I think back, Robbie Eichberg, uh, I know was a prominent Jewish. David Wexler, right. who started all the uh, AP AIDS Project Los Angeles. Diane Abbott, who created AIDS Project Los Angeles and HRC. I mean, Roberta Bennett, who created the Victory Fund. All of these very prominent Jewish, lesbian, and gay people starting up activism in Los Angeles. Yeah, and I think I think it is second nature. Like many Jews take part in social justice work without even realizing right. <laughs> what what uh, the background is for that. But I, I think it goes back to what we were saying before the break about the the most 
um, it's not only the most commonly mentioned commandment in Torah to take care of the stranger, to be, to reach out to the stranger, to not make a stranger a stranger. Um, it's it's in there way more times than anything else. Um, how do we take care of one another? How do we make sure that we live in community? And this um, assumption, uh, and it's really at the heart of Judaism, I think, is that people live in community and mm-hmm. that that is a good way to live. But how do we do that while still taking care of not just people's physical well-being, but their emotional well-being that that hearts are cared for as well as uh, physical bodies. You know, as we've uh, as we've gone through the AIDS epidemic and through gays in the military and through marriage equality and through everything else, yeah. you have always been there as one of the voices of the I've clergy. Tried to be. You have been. <laughs> I, I've you. seen you over the decades. You have been there, and what an extraordinary role you've played. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's it's been a, a real opportunity, and feel blessed by having had the privilege of coming to Los Angeles to a congregation like BCC that really, um, inten- you know, intentionally didn't just take care of its inner core, but was working to make the world a better place um, and inform people about who we are and um, what and what we want and what we need um, to be part of a whole. Um, W-H-O-L-E. I wasn't, I yeah. wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> um, so, and, and, you know, I said this um, recently, John, some, at, at, at the city of West Hollywood, um, because the city of West Hollywood has been there as a, as a meeting place. You know, it's a place that has, for these decades now, been calling people together and saying, you know, we're stronger as a community. So let's show our numbers. Let's right. be there in together. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of how I've had the opportunity over the years to to be a street lesbian rabbi as well as a <laughs> And I think it's been important because a lot of LGBT people are damaged by religion. I mean, John's going to be here talking about yeah. that in just a second. Yeah. But to We've see a it. rabbi show up, uh, you know, or uh, somebody with a collar on that's on our side, I, at least for me, made me do a double take at the beginning. Like, what are they doing here? Yeah. Why are they here? I They're think, religious people. <laughs> yeah, I think it's true. I think that was something that we needed to overcome also, because people do sort of turn away from, because John will testify that there's been experiences that there was good reason to turn away. Mm-hmm. But there's also good reason why LGBT people have gone into clergy positions and um, uh helped to to make our religions a more opening and welcome place and that has certainly um, changed a lot over the two and a half decades more than that right that people have been working about and, and I think we have become more God reliant than God defiant because <laughs> initially we were God defiant because we were told we weren't welcome right mm-hmm. we were told you're not welcome in the synagogue you're not welcome in the church you're not welcome in the mosque you're not welcome anywhere here and we are out there fighting for our lives and at some point, we all, at least speaking for myself and many others, reach a point where I just say, God, please help, because it's so overwhelming. We turn to something greater than ourselves, whether it's in recovery or whether it's in social work or something, and actually then watch a spirituality grow in a place where there's flowers in the desert <laughs> where you never thought the flowers would bloom. And I think the way you're describing it is accurate for a lot of people that we that we 
have come to that. Like we've done the political work, um, we've fought back, but then there's something more that we need. You know, mm-hmm. that there's a soul, something's pulling our soul that we need a spiritual place and presence also. And that I think is where where the queer friendly um, and queer and mainly queer congregations have, have been a real uh, place for people, to, a, a real home base for people, a safe haven. Well, we got to go to commercial again, but will you come back again? Now that you're retired, now yeah. I can have you come back. Really, uh, I got nothing. Just invite <laughs> me back. I'll have you come back, and we love having members of the clergy here, so it would be awesome. Thank All you, right. John. Gang, thanks for tuning in. When we come back, we'll be talking to Lane Hudson from Zero for Zeros and John Bozeman from Truth Wins Out. Thanks for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. The new Channel Q. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Money, money, money. That is our intro for our next guest. <laughs> Lane Hudson from Zero uh, to, for, for Zeros. He's calling in from London this morning. Morning, Lane. Welcome to the show. It's actually evening here, but good morning to you, and thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's great to hear your voice, Mr. Mayor. Oh, great Um, great to hear yours as well. Tell us about Zero for Zeros. What are you doing? What are you up to, Mr. Campaign Manager, Spokesperson? Well, the the kind of underlying concept of the campaign is very simple. We are asking our best corporate allies to the LGBT community to stop giving money from their corporate PACs to the absolute worst people in Congress on LGBT issues. And this is a you know, very narrow focused campaign and it's also well researched. Um, the way we came up with both the companies and the people in Congress was pretty simple. We started with, you know, HRC has some very good public tools available that anyone can use to advance their activism. One is the Corporate Equality Index and the other is the Congressional Scorecard. So we looked at all the companies, there are about 600 of them, that have a 100% rating on Corporate Equality Index. That means that they go above and beyond to provide safe and welcoming environments for their employees. They don't give to anti-LGBT organizations. They market to the gay community. Um, and then we took the Congressional Scorecard and we took all the zero percenters, people who don't do a single thing in Congress or vote the way HRC thinks they should. And we actually did an additional screen beyond that the people who did extra things outside of and so those are the people that we are calling the worst of the worst the they're actually kind of sub-zeros if you ask me they're losers and, they're zeros complete losers right yeah. so there, there are 10 members of the house of representatives and 19 senators in that grouping and there are 49 companies whose corporate packs give to those 29 members of congress that's really shocking to hear can you uh, drop a few names like who um, the members of Congress include people like Ted no, no. Cruz. Which which companies? I, I can guess the members of Congress. That's easy. <laughs> but which companies oh, are making this list? Um, I don't have the list in front of me, but I can tell you a handful of them. Um, our first wave that we're targeting are mostly tech and comms companies. 
So we've got um, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, um, Oracle, Intel, Cisco, um, AT&T, um, MasterCard, Visa. Those are some of the people in the first wave um, that we're targeting. And the approach that we're taking is, is a more traditional approach of, of an advocacy campaign. We sent letters to the CEOs of all those companies, and I've worked to reach out to their government affairs teams in Washington as well so that we can establish a dialogue um, and that they didn't feel like they were um, blindsided by something that they found in a news alert. Um, because we want to have constructive conversations with them about why this is important and how they can actually do this without impacting their legislative agendas in Washington. So let me play uh, devil's advocate for a second. What, what, what I imagine these companies are going to come back and retort with, well, we just give to both sides. We, we just give to you know both Democrats and Republicans because that's in our corporate interest. What, what would you say to them? Well, what I would say to them is that their internal policies and what they do for their employees and the values that they have in their company are incredibly pro-LGBT. They put on a public face. They sponsor their employees to march in pride parades all over the country. They change their social media avatars to rainbow colors of their logos. Um, Every part of what they do that is public facing is pro-LGBT. They've also, many of them have signed on to amicus briefs to overturn Prop 8, to return DOMA, and to win marriage equality in the U.S. Many of them recently, just last week, signed on to an amicus brief that is asking the Supreme Court to uphold the EEOC's finding that sexual orientation and gender identity are protected by Title IX of the Civil Rights Act. So they have clearly established corporate values all over the place. Everywhere you look, they, their corporate values reflect that they are pro-LGBT and they don't seem to be afraid of it. In fact, they seem to be out and proud with those values as a company. But their political giving does not match those values. And we are not asking them to stop giving to Republicans. We're not, stopping, we're not asking them to stop giving to all people who don't support equality. We're asking them to stop contributing to the worst of the worst. These are people who don't do a single thing for LGBT equality. And in fact, it's the people who are actively working against us every day. And since these companies have been a part of the progress that we've made and they have helped us along the way and supported us, by getting to these members of Congress that are the worst of the worst, they are people who would undo the progress that we've achieved together. Lane Hudson, I got to say something. I'm really glad you're our spokesperson and campaign manager. That was said really well. <laughs> that was said really well, Ben. <laughs> you know, we are looking at your Facebook, and we just noticed a picture of you as a teenager with a very young Hillary Clinton. So what is that about? <laughs> How long that have you a very, been a friend of Hillary that Clinton? That was a very young Lane Hudson. Yes, uh, I know. Was, I was 18 years old, and I... Gosh, that photo might have been... Um, no, I was definitely an intern at the White House um, that summer. Um, and that was at the State Department. Hillary was first lady, and she was giving a speech to all the Washington interns. I don't know if they still do this, but all the Washington interns used to be speeches that would be given by prominent people around Washington. And so she happened to be giving a speech that day at the State Department. That and is amazing. Well, I, I'm I was gl- able to... I was able to get a photo. I'm glad that you didn't just go into retirement, but instead you're continuing to do the good work. Good for you. We have less than a minute. Tell us about your website or how people can get involved with Zero for Zeros. 
So you can find us on Facebook at Zero Four Zeros on it's at Zero Four Zeros One. And what we would love for people to do is go to the website. There's a a place where you can click on the company logo, and it'll automatically generate a tweet to go to that company and ask them to stop giving money to um, anti-gay politicians in Congress. It's very easy, and it lets them know that people are hearing this and they agree with it and want them to um, stop doing that. Wow, that's amazing. Lane, thank you. You are on it, man. I'm going to, as soon as we finish the show, I'm going to go on the website and start sending uh, messages to corporate heads about stop funding these uh, Ted Cruises of the world. So thank you for your work, babe. Well, thank you for having me to talk about it, and I hope you have a wonderful day. We are going to, and I'm going to have you back later when we hear how the campaign is coming along. We'll have you back again, okay, Lane? Sounds great. All right, thanks for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. The new Channel Q. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Sidebar with John Duran, Channel Q. Welcome back, gang, to the next hour. Uh, we've got a couple of extraordinary guests coming up. We're just going to start out now with the incredible John Bozeman, who's back in studio from Truth Wins Out. Welcome Hi. back, John. Incredible. Well, yeah. How nice. Yes, because I think you're doing God's work. And you were sitting through Rabbi Edwards' interview, and you know, yes. I was watching you pay rapt attention yes, to her, given wonderful. that she's a religious leader. Yeah. But for people who are listening, you were raised in what, fundamentalism? So it was a Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist. Uh, I like to say cult, yes, fundamentalism. Fundamentalist cult. Yes, um, I was. So the church I went to had a school and a, a church. Obviously, so I was there six days a week. Mm-hmm. Where um, is this? What state? This was in Athens, Georgia. Georgia. All right. Yeah, the good old South. And so you were raised to think one thing, and when you realized you were gay, they tried to fix you by putting you into yeah. reparative you therapy. You know, what's interesting, I, I knew that I had attraction to men or boys at that time when I was five, very young. Mm. So I just at a very young age, I had this um, dissonance with what are these people telling me and teaching me about myself that I know and you have no idea. Um, And I wanted to fit in with that tribe, right? So I voluntarily went to conversion therapy. Mm. And I think that needs to be talked about that adults, like after you turn 18, you still have the desire to be with your culture and your family no matter how messed up it is. So... Yeah, I mean, I watched that. Boy Erased. That was such a compelling movie about yeah. somebody that tried to go through reparative therapy yeah. and finally found a way out. Yeah. But not everybody finds a way out. They Some don't. end up suicidal or despondent and despair. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I, I haven't watched Boy Erased yet. Oh. I just, I don't know if, I like, I have to I, find the right time. I think I'm going to sit and watch you it know? with you. I'm just going to, like, hold your hand <laughs> in <laughs> bring case out, you fall apart. Bring out the yeah. Kleenex. I mean, yeah. God. Yeah. yeah it's a very a powerful movie. Yeah. So, Truth Wins Out was created to do what? Yeah. So, back in 2005, 2006, Wayne Besson started Truth Wins Out um, to call out conversion therapy leaders. Uh, and he spent the last uh, the last ten or so years outing a lot of these leaders because I mean, Yvette Cantu Schneider, when we interviewed her a couple months ago, uh, she was with F- uh, FRC and Exodus. She said she spent the majority of her time uh, covering for leaders that were having sex with their clients. Right. 
I mean, and you know, we laugh and say, yeah, of course. Of course, yeah. But, you know, these parents that are... And this isn't just sex with their clients who are, you know, consenting adults. Like, uh, there are plenty of organizations that were doing really egregious things to kids. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and he so, was outing them. And so now, Truth Wins Out is working on legislation, right? Around the country and in the Congress to outlaw these practices? Yeah, so we're spreading out quite a, quite a bit. There's still conversion therapy to call out and leaders to call out. Uh, these these organizations tend to bubble up, get called out, go back into the dark and the shadows, and then pop back up somewhere else. So we're still doing that work. Um, and yeah, we are getting the word out about uh, bills that are uh, going up all over different states to ban conversion therapy for minors, mm-hmm. which is a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, Ted Lieu just introduced a bill um, to Congress to ban uh, conversion therapy on a federal level. And there's so. a good chance, I imagine, that'll pass the House. It may not see the light of day in the Senate, but it doesn't matter. Just, let's yeah. just get it out of a one the of conversation the is what needs to be started. And quite honestly, like I, I love that this bill is happening. Um, I'd like to see it go a bit further. I think it's called the the Fraud Prevention Act. So right. it's it's more about the fraud that's happening when you try to sell this quote quote therapy um, snake oil basically to a problem that doesn't exist. But right. I would like to see it go further and label it child abuse. Right. That is exactly what it is. It, it is abusive. Yeah. I, I mean, and I, you know, I only speak, I was raised Catholic, so, you know, I was raised in a religion that doesn't uh, approve of homosexuality either. And I remember having those, like, tearful nights where, God, just take this away, take it away, you say you're all powerful, take it away, take it away, and waking up the next day, and it was not changing (laughs) and then i was left in a place of despair like what am i supposed to do you know what commonly happens when you're that person going through that asking to be changed through prayer or whatever and it doesn't happen you can just just self-blame even more because then you have this outside contingent that says well you just didn't try hard enough or didn't pray hard enough right as if you could pray it away right i know yeah yeah i know that's why i think this work is so critical what you all what you all are doing thank you yeah Yeah, i think so too and what i find in the community is you know you talk about conversion therapy and you get this what that's still a thing yeah and (laughs) right yeah and it truly is and and while it might not be out and loud and proud it's still this conversation that's happening in the in the flyover states or i mean even here in california that further pushes that narrative that LGBTQ people don't deserve equality. And any law that's trying to be passed that's against the LGBTQ community is based, really, in this idea that you don't have to be the way you are. So going after conversion therapy organizations and leaders isn't just about stopping that. It really is trying to bury the narrative that we're less than human. Right. Hey, yeah, this is always the fun part about this argument with because I've had it with many fundamentalists over the decades. It's like, mm-hmm. well, you just choose to be gay. It's like, okay, let's just think about this. I'm choose? going to choose to be ostracized from my family, my friends, my God, myself. Right. I'm going to choose to be shunned, to be treated as less than, to be treated exactly. as inferior. I'm going to choose to be isolated and away from my... Yes, this is a logical choice yeah. for me to make. I want a life yeah. of depression yeah. and suicidal ideation. <laughs> and I want to spend thousands of dollars yes. in therapy. What a great choice. I've yeah. got goals. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. and all in the interest of lust. Yeah, it's like, come on, man. Right, 
right. Not love. It's not love. No, not yeah, love. Not, love. Not, not love. Yeah, it's Th- that's why silly. I think the work you're doing, and maybe maybe that's the reason why they have to treat it as fraud. Because I okay, if I can step into the shoes of the other, which I try to do when I don't understand something, these parents are they really think they are hopeful that they can make this happen, right? Because they love their child. But maybe if the parent began to believe that you were being tricked or fooled by something fraudulent. Right. It would give them pause. Because you can't have a battle over spirituality or religion. No one's going to concede. Right. Right? They're not going to concede that they're wrong on religion or spirituality. Right. But you're being defrauded. Maybe that's the open. Right. Which is extremely helpful. But I will say that a Fraud Prevention Act won't touch the churches. So the while it's a great step forward and it needs to happen on any plane, this needs to happen, I think there does eventually, if not as soon as possible, we need to have a conversation that this is abuse. It right. damages people. Yeah. And we are literally, there are people in this world that could be doing so much more with who they are if they didn't have to spend so much time so trying true. to be okay with themselves. So true. The American Psychiatric Association treated homosexuality as a deviancy until 1973. Mm-hmm. In 73, it was made normal. Yeah, which led to then the repeal of the sodomy laws in 75 in California and other places. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, looking at this historical timeline, I understand how we got here. But seriously, from 73 to 2019, there's a lot of journey. A lot of road has been traveled. And this this should have been buried decades ago. Well, enter the Southern strategy. That's partly why we're here, too. Oh, and you You have a set to go after the Southern states? Well, I mean, I'm talking about the Southern strategy that started in, what, the late 60s, early 70s? Where they realignment of the Republican realignment. Party. Yeah, they chose abortion and LGBTQ people. Right. Yeah. You know, and Gays, I think guns, and God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, people wouldn't care about us if they didn't weren't told to. Right. No. For a voter base. No, I think that's... <laughs> Which is I, a deeper conversation. I want you to see Boy Erase. I actually... Can yeah. we get a supportive group together yes, watching we party all, crew? We all, Can we take lots yeah, of pauses? And, and we'll, we'll take pauses and we'll like all take you in hands and lift you up whatever you I'm need done. to be lifted. Can we have a double feature and play anti-mame directly yes. after, please? I've been trying to get you to do that yes. watch party for I, years. I'm going to make you watch, by the way, gang, if you ever watch anti-mame with Rosalind Russell, never Lucille Ball. Yeah, that's do not, not a thing. Don't Lucille even mention Ball. the Lucille Ball no. version. I don't even know what Rosalind that is. Rosalind Russell, 1959 or 50. 58 is when the movie was made. Life is a banquet and most and poor, most suckers, poor are suckers are starving to starving death. To so death. come on, Agnes, live. <laughs> live, live, live. <laughs> there you go. Look yes. at you quoting Auntie Mame even though you've never seen Dude, it. it was my favorite movie when I was like three or four years old. Like you'd think all the signs were there. All the signs were there. <laughs> of course, Jason over here, you've probably never seen Auntie Mame. Have you, Dude? No, I couldn't say no, that. Well, you get to come to the watch party. <laughs> yeah, you're going to come to the watch party too, Jason. <laughs> that is so funny. Wow. Well, well, we are gonna uh, we're gonna go to commercial break in just a second here. But when we come back, and maybe you'll stay and join the conversation. I'll stay. All right. I'm having fun. Gonna talk to Doug Spearman, uh, an actor, writer, director here in Hollywood, African American gay guy, about the portrayal of Black lives in film and TV. Yeah, and stereotypes and tokenism. Fun stuff, huh? Right. Going deep on the show today. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys, for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran. We'll be right back after this commercial break here on Channel Q. The new Channel Q.
Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. I picked that song for you, Doug. That's Michael Jackson. Yeah, Stop I was afraid pressuring you me. <laughs> Stop pressuring me. And there's so many ways to interpret that with you. <laughs> uh, we are in studio with the wonderful Doug Spearman, uh, writer, director, actor, one of the co-founders of Equality California with me way yes. back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. Yeah. And uh, yeah. John Bozeman is still with us from Truth Wins Out. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Doug, you, uh, you and I this, let me tell the audience how this started. I saw Last Black Man in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. You saw Last Black Man in San Francisco, right? It's a story mm-hmm. about the gentrification of San Francisco with a lot of families being displaced by techno industry and wealth. You and people. I have a completely different and that's exactly, take on, on, like, that is not what this movie's about. That is what I got from it. It's about gentrification of neighborhoods. Dude, really? Displacing families. Yeah. No, it's a fairy tale. Please, you're on the air. Let's go. Okay, so the last black... Well, okay, being a black man who's been to San Francisco and actually took part in a boycott up there, Yeah. um, that movie isn't about gentrification. It's about someone being so damaged by the world that he was raised in as a black man in San Francisco, ghettoized, that he has trapped himself in this fantasy of a house that never really belonged to him. Got that it. he takes on like, himself, but it's literally about the fact that it's a fairy tale, John. Huh. I mean, it's a, it's a yeah, it, it's mythology. Oh, that's really see. This is interesting because I, of course, was looking through the political lens. Of I the am looking politics. through it through the political. You lens. You are too. Yeah, but, but based on your experiences as a black man. Yeah, but it's interesting because the two leads are at, no, well. You know, all, 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 all the, the leads are black. Are black. Yeah. No, not all the characters. All the leads are black. All the leads are black. Yeah. But you didn't mention that at all when you started talking about the movie. That all the leads are black, or that any that this was about a black man, two black men, and one of them's journey. Yeah. No, no, I saw it about gentrification and power. Wow, okay. As <laughs> yeah. you do, because you're a politician. I'm a politician. That's yeah. how I looked at it. But uh, And really non-racial yeah. in, a, in a great way. And I can say that, because yeah. I've known you forever. 20-some years. Shut up. 20-some <laughs> years. Stop saying that. 20-some years. Again, he said yeah. it. And often, I'm, I'm the brown man. You Often, you and I are the only black and brown in the room. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I know. Oh, yeah. I know. And we were talking about how we get portrayed in film. So, uh, between the Frito Bandito and uh, Speedy Gonzalez, that's oh what I- Oh, my God. I forgot about my, the Frito Bandito. <laughs> those are my images as a child. Frito Bandito, <laughs> the big guy, <laughs> yep, and little Speedy Gonzalez. Uh, I'm like, well, there's my ethnicity on the cartoon. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, growing up for me, I mean, we're, I think, the same age. 47? Yeah. 
Okay. In grinder years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. I upped it to 49 on grinder because it had to be plausible. What's grinder years? <laughs> Am I missing out on something? Grinder years is the posted age as opposed to your real age. Right. Okay. But is there like a, an equation that I must be plugging into mine I'm missing? No. You're, you're young. Totally you're, too old. You're too young you're to too even young. think about you this. You don't need okay? to do it. That's all, the, I, that's all I wanted. I wanted the grown ups are talking, honey. So just sit there and make a Lego I'll sit back block. and sip on my bottle. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, we're about the same age. Okay, anyway, so we're about the same age. So I remember, like, from, yeah, you're right. There was only Speedy Gonzalez and Frito Bandito. But for me, at least I had, like, Greg Morris and Morris on um, uh, Mission Impossible. Who was oh, yeah. the smart tech guy? He was hot. Too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, John, what? Just... He was hot. He was very sexually okay. attractive. <laughs> You're sexually sexually attracted to the microphone right now. <laughs> okay. So can we just move on? Yes, we'll move on. Okay. Right. So I come at this from a different perspective. I mean, like it, I'm a filmmaker right. and an actor, and I and I only did this, believe it or not, because when I was 12, I was watching the Tonys, laying on the floor in the living room, and Ben Vereen won a Tony for Pippin. Hmm. And I did not know that somebody who looked like me could do that and then do it on television. Because hmm. I almost never saw it. I mean, I think you rarely saw Sammy Davis Jr. At the Tonys, I don't think I recall ever seeing black people up on stage at the Tonys. The Oscars, yes. Okay. The Emmys, yes. Yeah. The Tonys. No. Well, that's why it was really rare. Because I, could, I, I know Porgy won... For best musical one year, and that's an all-black musical. Uh, two gentlemen from from Verona, the musical had black a black actor in it, and then there was Pippin, and he played lead character. Uh, mm-hmm. Ben Vereen played lead character, but it's because I had to see my I had to see somebody do it, and as a as a filmmaker, I believe. And anybody that deals with the, the the moving image, it's the largest cultural canvas we have. Right. It's it's. If, if you don't appear there, it's almost like you don't exist, which is why we fight for uh, storylines for people who look and are like me and you and you. And um, we, it, I get very concerned. I got really concerned after coming out of, um, well, first of all, it's a hard movie to watch as a black person, the last black man in Chicago, in, in San Francisco. Francisco. And you, I, were, you were the last black man in Chicago. <laughs> no, 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 no. There are lots. That, those, Barack Obama uh, for openers. Okay. Go ahead. Um, Chicago had a black mayor, too. Don't forget mm-hmm. that in the 80s. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, you made me forget what I was You walked out of the Oh, theater. so I walked out of there, and I realized that uh, Brad Pitt's company, Plan B, produced that movie. Right. Made it possible. All right. And I realized, because I follow these things, because there's so few black independent films that get critical and audience love, um, I realized that Brad Pitt's company had produced all of them. Moonlight, 12 Years a Slave, mm. Selma. I love Moonlight. And I, I even know oh, the I name Selma of the too. woman <laughs> who's the producer under Brad that did that, did that. And I thought, okay, these movies are, and I noticed this way back with um, Precious. Mm, another great also movie. a difficult film to watch if you're mm-hmm. black mm-hmm. Um, because it makes you so naked in front of people who aren't black because the stories are so inside and and being black can be so internal that I mean you're never without your racial identity in this country if you look like me ever 
And, True. You know, black for me. I get called gay. tan all the time. I know. When I'm actually Mexican. Well, I, I, don't, I get but, called tan. But Mexicans, just like black people, come in every shade from white, That's white true. to dark, dark. Moreno to huero, we call them. Okay. Huero being light skin, moreno being dark skin. Yeah, I, I speak that much I Spanish. I wouldn't sure if you smoke enough Spanish. <laughs> um, but do you understand what I mean? So, I do. So when you see a movie like that, it's so raw. Those, All of those movies are raw. And it's only because they're so grounded in the f- flagellating of, of black men. And, you know, f- whether it's a fantasy situation where a guy's trapped in his head, uh, living, in a f- in, living uh, a past that he didn't have. His grandfather didn't build that house. Um, or he's literally being flayed like the character in 12 Years a Slave. It's always about the victimization of the black man. And most of the time, it happens because there is some bodily harm, if not death, to a black man that becomes the the, the, the point of story that comes everything around. Like, all the movies that Plan B has produced have shown black men at their lowest, at their lowest, period. In whatever time period or place, they, they take and I'm tired of that. Uh, and it really bothers me that the most critical movies about black people that's considered what, you know, like upscale black independent film are normally produced by white people because if they didn't produce them, they probably wouldn't get done. But they're all about the, the lowest common denominator and the most vulnerable point in a black man's life. Mm. And I believe I come from the black middle class. You know, three generations of my family went to college. Um, my dad drove a big American car. Yes, we deal with being black men in this country all the time. But there are other stories you could tell about our lives and about the lives of our mothers and our sisters. Oh, I'm sorry. I get a little heavy handed and I start pounding on the desk. Sorry, kids. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, like just growing up in like we went to high school we had issues I mean like there there's a 1990s for black people out there somewhere do you know what I mean there's an ice like I'm working on a movie that's called that is my version of the ice storm in the neighborhood that I grew up with which was all middle and upper middle class black families right why can't we tell those stories in a way that attracts that kind of attention and money and support Maybe and maybe it's time, and maybe it's a historical thing. I was uh, born and raised here in Los Angeles, right? The only black people I ever saw, and I was here in Los Angeles, were on TV. Like when part of LA I was raised in, it was all Latino or Jewish. It was the East Side, East LA. It was all Latino and Jewish. I had no African Americans in my grade school or high school. That's because they're all living way south on La Brea. I know, out in South Central. I know this place. This, please do not. Uh, it's uh, it's economically segregated. Yeah. It's not color segregated in Los Angeles. That's but, what I and I think say. L.A. being a horizontal city rather than a vertical city. And sure. vertical cities like Chicago, New York, San Francisco, everybody gets together on the subway. Right, you're right. suddenly forced to mingle in a horizontal city without a public transit that is common for everyone. People end up in their cars isolated. I think that's sure. the difference. But I, my idea of what black. It was, it was actually defined by what I saw on television. So the Jeffersons, Flip Wilson, Whoopi Goldberg, 
that was my introduction to what black in America was about. I had to like go the journey later in life. I went to Cal State Long Beach. Showed up at Cal State Long Beach, half the student body was black. It was like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, we're about to get life lessons right here. But prior to that, it was the media that was delivering messages to me about black lives. Hello. I know. So if, I'm agreeing if, with you, babe. Yeah, I know. So, <laughs> you know, like, yay, thank you, high-fiving you without making noise. Um <laughs> Feel free to jump in on this. Yeah, well, what I was uh, what I was thinking, like that was your impression of black culture, but like, what do you think it does to to see all the crime shows having black people being uh, being the criminal? You know, what yeah. what did that do to you? With guns, well, see, you know, that, seeing it, but, that, but, but, it's but like, see, that's when awful. I was growing up, the, the black male victim roles didn't exist. First of all, it was the, the the time of Shaft. Shaft, Shaft, Superfly. 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 There was a, there was yeah. a whole resurgence in the black hero's journey, the black man's heroes, the black person's hero's journey through the seventies, eighties. You would never have seen any of these movies. Right. I mean, even Roots, which was probably the most watched television program of all yeah, time, right. yeah. um, was about this heroic struggle from this African Kunta Kinte. Na- named Kunta Kinte yeah. who is stolen and then it, it rises through like 10 generations of his family. Like I would not have seen, there would never have been a Precious. The closest thing to Precious or, or something like that would have been Lady Sings the Blues. Mm-hmm. Diana Ross's really excellent biopic of Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was about, I mean the whole phrase of the 70s was black power. It was right. black well, power. I mean, then what happened to the nineties? Because I feel like I mean, we I'm started a kid being the, the one. Well, here's what happened: and, we uh, became the one white person at the all the one black person at the all white movie. Mm. Like, if you want to see something, watch any of um, pretty much any teen get trapped in a house for the weekend movie. There's one black guy. Hmm. Yeah, that's what happened in the nineties, and he gets killed. He gets killed. But he, so the like, Waylands had a good time with this in scary movie. All of the yeah, scary exactly. movie, right. uh, the black guy always gets killed. Yeah. A, they make fun of this. So yeah. they started integrate, and it's funny because my acting teacher was the first person I ever saw take on this role, and it was one of the like you know I see things I'm like ooh I want to do that. Richard Lawson, who is my friend, my mentor, my acting teacher, he's also in my new movie. Um, it was in Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. In the original Poltergeist, Steven I don't remember Spiel. any. Black he was the black guy. He's the black guy, and I remember I don't watching. Remember any black guys? In well, Poltergeist. well, did he got? Did he die? No, he, he didn't. Oh, okay, well, um, progress. So it was about. <laughs> into, but when I saw Richard in a major summer blockbuster directed by the most senior director, do you know, and you know, Sp- Steven Spielberg directed that, and suddenly it's legitimate. Right. And suddenly, I, I really do believe that Richard is the one who started that one white guy and a, a one black guy and a group of white people thing, because he was cast in this role on Poltergeist. And I remember sitting there with my girlfriend. Um, that's how long. That's ago how long was. ago it was. Um, <laughs> going. That's saying. what I can do. I want to be the black guy in the white movie because that guy's making a lot of money. Hmm. And a lot of people are going to go see this movie. Yeah. And then years later, Richard became my acting teacher, like randomly. Oh, there you go. That's nice. ironic. But, but that's what happened. Like, you know, the late 80s, 90s, it suddenly became, okay, it, it suddenly became inclusive, but you needed one. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. 
We are, uh, when we come back from commercial, I want to hear your thoughts on Black Panther. And I'm just going to warn you in advance, I love those guys. <laughs> I know, I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. You're saying it already, but we're going to commercial break. So you're going to have to think about it for four minutes. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll be right back on Sidebar with John Duran here oh, on Channel Q. The new Channel Q. John. Yes, Doug Spearman, you are looking at the man in the mirror. I picked that song for you too, babe. Hey, you're lucky I picked the songs that I picked. It could have been it could have been Superfly. He doesn't seem too happy with these <laughs> He's songs. Rubbing his brow <laughs> because uh, because you're doing the thing that is the reason why I'm sitting here. I know. Oh, babe, I'm, what do you call it? I am completely aware of that's why I picked okay, those reductive. two songs. <laughs> that's it's why I reductive. picked these two songs because then you would get you agitated and excited to talk. <laughs> <laughs> now let's talk about my obsession with the movie Black Panther. Okay, well, <laughs> I love Black Panther, and so did I. all of the characters were black. Well, most of them, almost all. <laughs> yeah, and the leads, both the protagonist and the antagonist, were unbelievably talented. And I love the story. They are. I worked and, with Michael B. Jordan when oh. he first started in television. We were both on. I was working for ABC, and he was on uh, All My Children. I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. I own a copy. That's how much I love Black Panther. It's fantastic. It's yeah. an iconic movie. It's an iconic. I look movie. at it this way. I think I, when I when you look at like all the Marvel movies, mm. I, for, for me, Thor Ragnarok is the best movie. Oh, However, okay, I, okay. <laughs> I almost dropped the f bomb. Get the censor button ready <laughs> if he talks about that actor. Again. Um, but I think I really do believe that Black Panther is the most important Marvel film because because. That it is set in a a world where the hero of the movie who goes through the true hero's journey is a black man. Right. He's a superhero. And the cause, the, the plot, the antagonism between those two characters is completely understandable and justified. And they both work it out the best way they do. Mm. And... It's first of all, it's beautiful, it it's super empowering. Mm. I mean, if you're a black, black kids now have somebody go, I can be him. Mm. Like I, he looks like me. You cannot, I cannot underestimate what it's like to grow up and not see yourself reflected in the true way. I know you understand that from a from a gay man's perspective. I do, and a Latino. You understand? And, yes, you're you absolutely right. Until George Lopez, you guys had yeah, nothing. Yeah, thank you. Now look, can we just say <laughs> you guys have Barack Obama to point at, right? Well, what do I what do I have to point at? Sonia Sotomayor on the Supreme Court right. and a handful of U.S. senators, right? Okay. We're, we're not quite there yet. We don't have, I have a, a, theory about that a Latino too. from California elected governor or U.S. senator, yet we're half of the state's population. Well, so uh, I, I, I have a theory about that, too. All right, let's hear it. Um, and maybe this is a cultural uh, misinterpretation on my part, but I believe... That like for this, this is the difference between being black in America and being, I believe, um, a Mexican in Mexico. Um, being black in America, you had the, you had there was a certain, there was after you know, slavery ended, there were no more overlords telling you what you could and could not do. Really, you could pretty much do whatever you thought you could, even if it took you out of the place you were born. You had to move get an education and there has been, and I come from a people who are what were called strivers who always every generation had to be better 
than the generation before, economically, socially, financially, and in terms of your your education. You're, we're constantly expanding upward. And I see that, and there's a long history of that in this country for black people, even though we are definitely had to fight for separate and unequal and still separate and equal, whatever. Do you know what I mean? But when I look at Mexico and its revolutions and its colonialism, I don't believe... That, well, let's put it this way. There has been a black middle class in America for a long time. And that has spread its ideas in, you know, in two ways, down and up, in this country. I don't get the sense that there has ever been... There's a long history of a Mexican middle class in Mexico because a lot of it's rural or it's landowners or people with money. I have to speak up, but there was in California. I mean, California, no, I'm Arizona, about, New Mexico, Texas, yeah, were yeah, all yeah. Mexico. Well, <laughs> they were like actual Mexican I'm talking ranches. about Mexican right now. Yeah. There, there's, a, there's, there's a big difference between a Mexican where we moved the border, where the, the U.S. government moved the border right. and created the United States out of what had been Mexico. 1919? Yeah. New Mexico. But, You've been to Mexico City, though. I mean, yeah. it's a thriving metropolis. It is, but yeah. that's not all of Mexico. That's like saying... Cal- uh, United, the United States is New York. Or the United States is Omaha. Yeah, very different places. It's a places. combo. Yeah, very different places. It's always yeah. a combo. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, and, and, and I'm trying to be as respectful. Whenever we talk about race, I'm always, I, I'm always on pins and needles. I know, everybody right? is. Everybody is. But uh, I, I, You can be who you need to be. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. I, you know, when I look at the African-American experience, from my point of view, and I'm not black, right, and I'm Latino, you, we've gone from enslavement, from two-fifths of a person. It took two constitutional amendments, a civil war, and 150 years on top of it to elect the first black president. So even though the issue has been resolved generation after generation, it's still not there. It's still not there. Dude, it is so not there. Wait. Um, Far away from it. it um, I, was, um, I, had to, I had to tell somebody what a lynching was the other day that I showed him a picture. Um, but well, a friend The of fact my- that he didn't know may be a good thing, actually. If somebody was ignorant that didn't even know that that existed in this country, maybe that's well. It'd be great if it didn't still exist, right? It's, okay, that's we don't the know point. History. So, no. uh, a friend of mine sent me a video that she took with her cell phone in New York a couple of days ago of these two cops shooting a black man when he was face down, and they shot him at close range. Like the bullet, the gun was against his shoulder when they shot him, and she's got a clear shot of this. And, I, and she's like, oh, my God, this country's going to hell. I'm like, honey, it didn't change. Right. It hasn't changed. You know, I mean, the black men get killed on a disproportionate level to everybody else in this country. We are 70% of the U.S. prison system. Right. But only 14% of the country is right. black. Yeah. So, I, 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 you know, whether it was lynchings or being dragged here in chains or, you know, being like my my family only moved to New York because the Klan came from my uncle on a Sunday morning mm. in where uh, uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, mm. and um, he wouldn't get off the sidewalk for a white woman, and they put my uncle in the boxcar as it was moving through Tupelo, and he had the entire wealth of his family, my mom, my grandmother, my dad, his mother, 
and it was a $20 gold piece. Right. They put it in his pocket. Hence the term strivers. So the strivers then, his his goal then was to make life better for his children and his children's children. Which he did. And he, and he did. All right. We, we're going to go another, will you stick around? We're, sure. I feel like this is worthy of one more segment before the top of the hour. We may as well keep you here. Take me, John. Take me. You know, if I had a dollar for every time, no. Yeah. I, I'd have yeah. a dollar. You'd have a dollar because I'd never said that before in my life. All right. Thanks for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. The new Channel Q. Welcome back to Cyber John Duran. Okay, gang, here's what we're doing. So we are like overpopulating in the studio because I have got a white guy, John Bozeman Hi. from Truth Wins Out. I've got a straight Muslim producer named He's Jason straight? Yazid. Well, hello. He's straight. You're straight. There he is. straight. I am the Latino Hispanic no, in the room. We have an African American, you know, actor, black. producer, writer, I'm just black, black. Du- Doug Spearman. And we decided to double down on the black by bringing Jared Hill, who's on the next. Up Next, his show, we're doubling down on the black to have I've a full had, conversation. I don't know that I've ever been introduced by doubling down on the black. <laughs> doubling down Bring black. it in, Jared. I've done that on the keynote table. Double I down love black. it, yes. <laughs> I've done it in other places. All right. Well, there you go. I, I didn't say I've never you doubled down on the black. I just said I've never been introduced that way. Oh, I've only doubled down on the down low. But that's another story that's a for different another conversation. show. Different radio show. show. This is radio. radio. <laughs> <laughs> this is what Maybe happens. he is a little straight. You got four <laughs> game men yes. radio show. Jason, just get ready with the uh, sensor button. Oh, I don't ready. know what's coming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, let's talk about stereotyping, shall we? Oh, let's. Oh. <laughs> Come on now. I mean, I'll start with my own. Hispanics, Latinos, maids, gardeners, Immigrants, you know, and is all that true? Yes, it's all true, but there's so much more to our lives. And that, I guess, that is the point that we're talking about. Yeah, it is. It's the point of representation. And, but the, yeah, my high school uh, principal was a guy named Frank Tracy. And Frank would say this thing every morning over the announcements. He would say, and any kid that went to my high school for 30 years knows this, and it's ingrained in them. If it is to be, it's up to me. So I can comp- I can point out and rant about anything that I do, and I have to be willing to take responsibility to form and execute a solution. So as a filmmaker and somebody who's still working in an independent film, I can then go, this is bugging me. This situation is bugging me. So I'm going to tell my story from my perspective. Mm. I, I, part of the reason I, I ran in here, uh, full disclosure, I was like, I'm listening in the next room. I really want to come be on the show. We can call it crosstalk <laughs> at, leading into my show. But like, me and Allie are going to be up next, but I want to talk. Um, so uh, when I came into the studio earlier, uh, Doug and I were talking about The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and you were uh, talking about a post that you'd written where you were saying that you felt like you were tired of seeing like the extremes of it. it's either like slavery, better black stories, or like some impoverished, impoverished uh, situation where there's like a or there's a gang situation, you know what I mean? Um, and and just kind of like wishing that we could see just more like everyday black people, right? And I, I completely agree with you on that. Um, I remember working at CNN and I was working on Black in America too, and we had gotten so much flack about the first Black in America from black folks saying that like that doesn't represent me, and I'm not, I'm I didn't see myself in that. As if CNN's job was to tell black people who they were, right? Mm-hmm. The whole point of Black in America was to show different black experiences to the general population. And I felt like what it highlighted for me at that time and what it highlights for me now is 
it shows us how few stories there are being told that anytime there is a story being told, we want to see ourselves in that. And so it's hard because like, yes, there were 495 television, uh, scripted television shows on television last year. And we felt like, oh, there's so much black stuff on TV. It's like, but if there were 10 shows, like what percentage, you know what I mean, of all the shows that are going out into the world exactly. are really showing different black stories. And so for myself I'm writing a script I know everybody like has ideas for things that they'd love to see and like we've got to continue to see more and more stories and like that doesn't even touch on how many Latino and Hispanic stories we see and how few Asian stories we see and we don't see any Native American stories right so like I mean or Muslim or Muslim like you know what I mean we just got we just got a Muslim show on Hulu this year right seriously about with Rami so it's like you know we we see so few images of ourselves and so we're so starved for like any time that there's something it's like where can I find myself in that and it's difficult and it's frustrating and and it's like okay well what do we do about that like we have to be able to continue to tell our own stories and have the platforms to do that and I think that's really important and I see myself like as someone who's on the radio every day and who has a platform on social media or whatever like I'm always mindful of like how important it is to be able to have a seat at that kind of table so you have to and you know what you can't wait for them to I I spent a lot of time waiting for them to give me that yeah but you in because technology has both democratized you know the way people tell stories and how quickly they get them on the air you have there there there's more space to fill up yeah. with our and we should do it yeah yeah you know we should take up the space and because you can now because if you're walking around with an iPhone you've got a 5k uh, cinema camera you know you can edit it and I movie you can get it up on you know YouTube in a matter yeah. of seconds you know what I mean Vimeo I mean there are all these platforms and we have to use them which I, which I believe, like I, li- my, I live with my godson who's seventeen, and um, he has the most amazing group of friends. And you would, if if you didn't look at them and knew what color they were, they would all blend in. If you can hear them, they're all the same culture, mm-hmm. and they don't look at the world at all the way we did. That's very true. And I'm, you know. But while I'm here, I still feel like I have a job to do. Well, I mean, young LGBT people don't see the world maybe like we do. I mean, I was trying to explain to people what Proposition 102 was the other day. Mandatory quarantine of HIV-positive people in detention camps in 1986 and 88. People are like, what? Where? Mm -hmm. California. That actually happened. Yeah, we've come a long way. Yeah, I mean, we have come a long way. I, my, my my youngest sister is 19 years old, and I, I we always talk about the word woke, right, and how mm-hmm. silly it is or how important it is. But, like, I think about my 19-year-old little sister, my 26- and 27-year-old brothers, and, like, they have a completely different view of the world than I did, right? But they also have to. They live in a time where Donald Trump is the president, yeah. right? Where, like, the president won uh, white votes only, and, like, in the way that that has shaped the narrative of this country over the course of the last two and a half years and seemingly for yeah. however long he's there. Hate crimes are up. And hate crimes blacks, are up. Exactly, gays, yeah. Muslims, immigrants. But then again, believe it or not, so are suicide rates among white men. Oh, really? I didn't yeah, know they that have part. been for the last nine years. Absolutely. Well, but but that's not even hard to understand, right? Like, well, no, it's not. Wh- white men see themselves as threatened, uh, threatened and uh, under fire, and like it's the hardest time to be a straight white man and all that kind of stuff, right? But the point is, everybody's under fire in this country. Yeah, that's why none of us are getting a break. Yeah, no, nobody's. It's a war against women. It's a war against the straight white men. It's a, a war against immigrants. It's a war against black men. But it's also. Um, 
my, Jesus, one of, it's exhausting. One of my one of my favorite <laughs> memes is uh, when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Mm. And so it's like, yeah, this is what it's like when you don't have the pedestal, right? Like of being a straight white man that always lifted you up so high and made you above everyone. When you have to really start feeling like, oh, I, I have to deal with stuff in the same way. Like that feels like oppression, right? We are at the end of the hour. <laughs> oh my God, we're having so much no. fun! All right, John Bozeman, Truth Wins Out. Thank you for coming by. People Thanks go visit your website. Yeah. Fight back against reparative therapy. Yeah. Doug Spearman, good luck at Outfest. Your Thank movie you. Zero to I Think I Love From You. From Zero to From I Zero love to I Love You yeah. is going to be premiered at Outfest. Congratulations! Thank you, and Jared. You show is up next. Yes. People should continue to tune in. Coming yeah. up next, we're going to be talking about uh, all kinds of different stories. Uh, one of the things that I got in big trouble about with Black folks um, regarding the LGBTQ community. We'll have a conversation about that um, and a whole lot more. So There you go. Next week on Sidebar with John Duran, the incredible Del Shores will be here. Playwright, author, uh, writer, director, actor, and uh, also Rita Gonzalez, who started IMRU on KCRW. We're going to continue with the black and brown stories next week. Without you, Doug. Why? uh, (laughs) Why? Why? This this has been a lively conversation. (laughs) Believe it or not, Doug Spearman and I have been friends for 25 years. And it ended today. <laughs> it ended today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Have a great weekend. And thanks for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. The new Channel Q.